everyone, and welcome to the debut episode of STEM Diaries Beyond Breakthrough, the podcast where we unravel the captivating stories of scientists going beyond the lab to explore the personal narratives that shape their journey. I'm your host, Monica, a PhD student in chemistry and the founder and chair of STEM Now, Nourishing Opportunities for Women, a support group dedicated to empowering women in STEM. The development of this podcast stems from my desire to spotlight the remarkable talent of scientists worldwide. A focal point of STEM Diaries is to amplify the voices of marginalized groups within the scientific community, showcasing the diverse representation that exists globally. Beyond merely portraying scientists as experts in their fields, I aim to underscore the intricate life paths and challenges they navigate. The motivation behind interviewing scientists extends beyond their professional endeavors to encompass their personal lives. By doing so, I hope to foster a connection between listeners and these scientists, humanizing their experiences and showcasing the shared aspects of our community. Join us as we embark on a fascinating conversation with Dr. Marlene Belfort, a trailblazer in biochemistry. Our guest today is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a distinguished professor at SUNY Albany, and a pioneer in the field of intron biology. Dr. Belfort's groundbreaking work has not only earned her a place in the National Academy of Sciences, but has also inspired countless scientists. So welcome, Dr. Belfort. So thank you so much for inviting me to debut this series. This is very exciting, and um, I'm very proud of STEM now and um, all the work that you've been doing, Monica, to uh, promote the careers of um, young women and young men as well, actually, um, in the STEM field. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for that. We're excited to talk to you today. Um, And your journey is also truly remarkable. And growing up as a daughter of German immigrants in apartheid South Africa, you've navigated unique challenges. How did your early life experiences influence your pursuit of science? And what lessons did you carry from those formative years into your career in biochemistry? Yeah, so I knew from an early age that I um, really loved math and science. Um, And actually, I went to an all-girls school where math and science wasn't encouraged back in those days, where um, smart young women were taught language and um, and those not studying language studied like domestic science, it was called, which is home economics, right? Um, so I really needed to um, find a way, um, and I did um, through hard work and tutoring, and it turns out that my tutor um, landed up being my husband, so that was very convenient. And um, I think that the education I got in South Africa was um, very foundational. It was the British system of education. There was a lot of rote learning, but also a lot of discipline required um, in the educational process. So that was all very helpful to me. And um, 
I really benefited a lot from the South African education. I also benefited by going to an all-girls school. So from K through 12, I was just surrounded by women, and um, that was very influential um, in my educational life. Yeah, your early experiences must have laid the foundation for your remarkable journey. And I'm also wondering, because you have very different experiences going into your undergraduate career, because you were one of the first undergraduate women to study microbiology at the University of Cape Town. So I'm wondering how that also shaped you and how you made the transition from an all-girls school to then being one of the only women in your undergrad. Yeah, so um, there were times when um, I was really oblivious to being one of the few women in the class and just did what I needed to do. But there were other times where it was really hammered into me that I was one of the few women. Um, I had a TA um, and he came up to me during a lab and said to me, hey, do you know women should be for maternity, not for chemistry? And wow, I was dumbstruck. And um I was a little nervous about what I was doing anyway, and this was just sort of crushing. And then fast forward probably 20 years after um, I had my PhD, I had had three children, I got my first job. This was actually in Albany, New York at the Wadsworth Center. And I saw a name on the office near mine that resembled the name of this TA. And sure enough, it was him. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. So I gingerly knocked on the door and told him that women could be for maternity and for chemistry. But the story just illustrates how um, difficult it was in those days just being one of so few women um, in the sciences. And there were very few female role models, and that's what made it hard. Yeah, well, what an incredible story. I'm glad you were able to push through and um, you were able to continue your studies without letting people like that get you down. Um, and I'm also wondering, since you continued with your studies, even though all of those challenges what led you to specialize in the study of introns and how did your early research in E. coli and T4 phage set the stage for your groundbreaking work? Yeah, so um, when I was a graduate student at the University of California at Irvine, I chose um, to study microbial genetics because I was fascinated by the microbial world. And um, and then really continued on during that PhD experience, I started to work on phage. And um, then for my postdoctoral work, which is at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, I continued working on phage. And then when I started my own lab, um, that was what I knew. and. The study of introns was actually a serendipitous discovery. 
um, we were studying um, nucleotide metabolizing enzymes um, encoded by phage. And the regulation of these enzymes seemed peculiar to us. And so we followed up on that and discovered that um, the reason that was peculiar is because there was an intron in one of these nucleotide metabolizing enzyme genes. And so this was in Albany, actually, at Wadsworth with colleagues who contributed to the discovery, whereby they did the protein chemistry and I did the genetics. And we discovered an intron, which was the first intron um, in the prokaryotic world to be known. So to that point, one of the definitions of a prokaryote is, in addition to not having a nucleus, it doesn't have introns. And so um, we proved that that wasn't correct. And in fact, that phage can have introns. In addition to this one, we discovered several more in collaboration, actually, with Dr. David Shoup, who was a professor in the biology department um, at UAlbany. Um, and then once we made those discoveries, we found that these introns are catalytic RNAs, that they're mobile genetic elements. And so um, I invested a career in studying those. Well, that's truly remarkable. Um, and you talked a lot about your significant insights into prokaryotic introns. Can you explain the importance of these discoveries and how they've contributed to our understanding of genetic processes and future work that has been done with it? Yes. Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, these are catalytic RNAs, um, as pointed out by um, the discoverers of catalytic RNAs. Um, they were Tom Check and Sidney Altman and Norman Pace, um, their discovery really got to a conundrum, which was what came first, nucleic acid that does the coding or proteins that does the work, that do the work, right? Um, and so which is the primordial, primordial molecular, macromolecular molecule. Um, and once catalytic RNA was discovered, it was, oh, wow, here's a molecule that can do both coding and molecular work. And so it really shone light onto RNA being the primordial nucleic acid, being the primordial molecule um, that could do it all. And then um, back to your question of, um, you know, what fascinated us for so long, uh, we discovered that in addition um, to being RNA catalysts, these introns could move from place to place on genomes. So they were also mobile genetic elements. So um, they could invade 
foreign sequences and so influence the evolution um, of those organisms um, in that way as well. So really important molecules from an evolutionary standpoint. Wow, that's really interesting. And unraveling the mysteries of genetic processes is truly fascinating. But shifting gears a bit, can you discuss your research on self-cleaving in teens and their potential applications in biotechnology and disease? Sure. So first of all, um, an in teen is um, kind of the protein equivalent of these introns that we worked on. So the introns are called group one introns and group two introns. And as I mentioned, they're RNA catalysts and um, they can splice, which means they can be removed. Uh, so they self-splice and um, and intines are really the protein equivalents. So they don't get removed at the level of the RNA, but rather stay in the protein until it's fully formed. And that's when splicing occurs. So um, they're the protein equivalents also from the point of view of being mobile genetic elements. So their DNA can crash into new places on genomes. And so again, um, they mirror what the group one and group two introns do. And so we were fascinated by that. And also, um, one day I was taking a walk with my husband, George, who's a professor of chemical engineering, and I was telling him about these fascinating um, proteins, these intines. Um, and he said, you know, one could make use of those. Why don't we work together on that? And so that started a collaboration. He managed to get funding for us to work on intines and their uses in biotechnology, which is a whole different field um, to one that I was accustomed to working in, but which turned out to be a very successful branch of what it is that we did. And was very interdisciplinary. So it was geneticists collaborating with chemical engineers, collaborating with physicists, um, eventually um, collaborating with the infectious disease specialists, because not only are in teens useful in biotechnology, because they can make and break peptide bonds, but um, also um, they can be targets for antimicrobial development, right? So they sit in the genomes of infectious organisms. And so if one can develop inhibitors of protein splicing, these things get stuck in um, important proteins um, and so it kills the organism, right? So uh, we did a little bit of that too um, in collaboration with people who work on mycobacteria that, that cause tuberculosis and, and others who work on um, fungal pathogens. Um, and so this is just another approach to solving 
the multi-drug resistance problem of microbes. I think it's um, really great that you were able to do all of this work and have all of these different collaborators, even expressing some of the challenges you've had in your early stages of your career about people telling you that women are for having babies and not for and not for doing any scientific work. So I'm wondering, um, how was it collaborating with your husband and all of these other people? Do you feel like even now at this stage in your career, were you able to be taken seriously? Yeah. So um, I, you know, could have continued on a very linear path and I'm sure the science would have been okay, but it became clear that when collaborating across disciplinary lines, one gets taken to places, one's research gets taken to places that it would never have gone if one did it um, in isolation. And, um, and also our disciplines are so specialized these days. Um, I'm trained as a geneticist and a biochemist. I'm not trained in structural biology. I'm not trained, for example, in crystallography or in cryo-EM. These are all techniques that we used in the course of our work, and that could only have been possible uh, through collaboration. And um, the more specialized our sciences become, I think the more important it is to cross disciplines. And I think one can only do that very effectively by collaborating with other specialists. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing. And I'm also wondering, because you've mentioned balancing scientific career and family, can you share insights into how you manage this balance, especially during times when both you and your husband pursued demanding careers? Yeah, so um, I'll say it was difficult, but extremely rewarding. So um, one of my guiding principles, as in science, to get as much help as possible. So while I was a postdoc, I forked over my entire salary to having the children taken care of. So one of them was born when I was in graduate school, and two others were born while I was a postdoc. And oh wow, <laughs> yeah, we while while we were in graduate school, we hired another graduate student to take care of our. Um, little boy. And then um, when I was a postdoc and my husband had his first uh, faculty position, we hired a nanny. And as I said, that consumed all of my salary. But I knew I wanted to be a mom and I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And in order to do both, um, I needed to get as much help as possible. And I've always relied relied on on getting help. And so, for example, we just downsized our house. So, you know, living in a place for 42 years and moving, oh, I didn't know how to do that. So I hired a um, an organizer and she got me on track. She said, oh, you have boxes for 
give away and boxes to move to your apartment and let's label them and let's move. And, you know, so I actually had to spend several hours with her so that she could do her job. Um, but she did it. And, and yeah, voila, we moved. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways I did it. Um, another thing is I really took um, extreme delight in being a mom. As you know, science can sometimes be fraught with difficulties. And so I would come home from the lab after having had a paper rejected or a grant trashed, and I would hug my kids, and that would make me feel better. <laughs> and sometimes oh, they would make heart. me crazy. And then I would say, sorry, I have to go to work. <laughs> so, yeah, so doing the two together, I think, actually um, – <laughs> can be activities where one reinforces the other. So it requires a huge amount of work. But um, in retrospect, I don't know that I would have been nearly as good at the two jobs if I did them alone. Yeah, I think it's really great how you mention how much help you received and asked for, like hiring a nanny or hiring an organizer to show you what to do. Because I feel like especially as women, we feel like we have to do it all and have yeah. to have it all together. And we don't maybe want to yeah. accept any help because we have a little bit too much pride and we want to show that we are able to do everything. But it's, I think it's great that you can share like, no, if I want to be able to be a mom and a scientist, I need to hire a nanny or I need to do these things and accept yes, help from absolutely. people and also reach absolutely. out and ask for help and hire somebody. Yeah, I think that's really great. I can't even imagine being in grad school with two kids right now. <laughs> well, I think I think especially our generation is shifting less like waiting till we get a lot older to have yeah. children. So when you say you go home to hug your kids, we're all like, well, we go home to hug our cats yeah, and dogs. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's them. fine, too. I don't think there's any one perfect way to do it. The only thing I know is that um, if you want to do it and you want to be a parent, do it. It's um, it's it's really very gratifying. And 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 one other message I have um, for younger scientists: I know that um, there's a lot of guilt associated with. Um, leaving the kids to do a job that requires great intensity, right? And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm destroying these children, <laughs> right? Feeling guilty and dragging them around the world from place to place. And, you know, I'm, I just had this feeling that I was totally screwing them up. And the very things that I thought were messing them up were the ones that were really good for them. So they're each other's best friends to this day. They're adults. They have their own children. But they're so used to taking care of each other because that's what they needed to do as children. And when they were moved from place to place, they needed to be each other's friends because everybody else was strange and foreign. So you know, I think as long as one gives them all the love they need, um, some 
benign neglect can actually be to advantage. And I wish I knew that then um, as clearly as I know it now. Yeah, I think I think there's no one way to raise your children. Like you don't have to do it in this traditional manner. And I feel especially um, as researchers or like someone who's a researcher and a mother like you were, may feel really guilty about working too much or having to do these things for your work and feel maybe guilty about about like maybe not spending so much time with your children or having to move them around. But really, I'm sure it made them a lot more worldly and able to meet like diverse groups of people. And I think there are a lot of benefits to that as opposed to someone who doesn't yeah, do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you say, there's no one right way. But Certainly the kinds of sacrifices that one needs to make to have um, a high-powered career, or, uh, they, can be, they can be good um, rather than detrimental. And, um, and the other feeling that is pretty overwhelming is not spending enough time in the lab, right? So... Um, the other graduate students were always there two or three hours longer than I could be there. Um, and uh, I couldn't go on all of the trips that I wanted to go and all the meetings that I wanted to attend um, because of the children. And um yeah, and somehow that all works itself out because I think if one feels um, happy and satisfied, one is better able um, to do creative and high-quality work in, in less time than, you know, if one slogs and slogs and labors. So, yeah, I think the two activities benefit each other. And the other thing that really made it possible was having a supportive partner, right? So um, not only is he completely dedicated to the children still to this day, um, but also um, since he's an academic, although it requires very, very long hours there's some flexibility in schedule, right? So one doesn't have to be at the office from nine to five. Um, and and that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. That I I think it's key to have a supportive partner to help you raise your children. I do. And I think it's also important to note that, yeah, you may have felt guilty about missing out on some things in the lab, but you knew you wanted to be a mother, you knew you wanted to be a scientist. And if you chose one or the other, like if you chose just science, you would have probably felt something missing in your life. But because you chose both, yes, you had to, yes, you had to choose one or the other sometimes, but you allowed yourself to lead a fulfilling life and feel right. full. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And so being a mother, there, you must have, you know, you have this care in you. And I'm wondering how you approach mentorship in the field and what advice you may have for aspiring scientists, especially those from underrepresented backgrounds, like women like yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you asked a really big and important question. There are actually several questions there. 
um, one relates to um, mentoring style and the other one relates to embracing diverse populations. And I'll address those separately. I, I think um, the reason this question is so important is that raising children helps one be a better mentor. And mentoring well can help one understand one's children better. I'll give you an example. Um, our oldest son, uh, David, he, he was a dream boy. He was really an easy kid to raise until just before he left for college. And then he became impossible. And... <laughs> And so I spoke to my therapist and he said, oh, that's separation anxiety. And I said, oh. Aww. And then my first graduate student was a dream graduate student until two months before she was graduating. And then she became ornery and difficult. And I thought, oh, this is separation anxiety. I understood it immediately. So... Yeah, so there are parallels between mentoring and um, and parenting that I think are important and mutually reinforcing. So um, that's my answer to um, to the first question. And I also think mentoring is about nurturing, as is parenting, and so. Um, lots of common elements. Um, to the question of um, my interests in the diversity space, so I was raised in apartheid South Africa. Um, and so first of all, um, anybody with a conscience felt um, very much disturbed by the fact that white people were at an absolute disadvantage over people of color. And so that uh, was consciousness raising. Not only that, but my mother worked full time and I was taken care of by my grandmother and an African maid. Her name was Bessie. And I was as close to Bessie as I was to my grandmother. Really? So I really loved her and um, and was plagued by the fact that I had opportunities that she would never have and that her children would never have. And um, so I really feel it's my duty and honor to... Um, make our academic space more welcoming to students of color and faculty of color. And um, actually, I've closed uh, my lab recently. Um, and this is what I want to be spending my time on, because I think it's a really important and difficult problem. Yeah, I think it's really important that you mention this, especially you talk about growing up in um, apartheid in South Africa, but you can still see a lot of these underlying issues today where we live in the U.S. 
And I think it's great that you are trying to do something about it and advocate for those who who may be underrepresented or marginalized. Um, and your commitment to mentorship and diversity is truly commendable. And uh, speaking of, it's evident in your advocacy efforts. So how do you believe the scientific community can continue to promote diversity and what steps can individuals take to contribute to this goal? Um, yeah, so first of all, um, the efforts on campus to take care of undergraduates um, of color are spearheaded by uh, Professor Robbie Musa, um, an African-American professor of chemistry. And so working with her and supporting her um, is the best way I know how to influence undergraduates. Um, she's um, extraordinarily committed and talented and just succeeded in getting a Howard Hughes grant. Um, in terms of graduate students, um, we collaborate um, in trying to make their educational process more welcoming. But also, um, one of my thoughts goes to how do we get faculty of color so that the students really can relate to their teachers as respected people who look just like them. Exactly. And that's very difficult because every... Every university is trying to hire people um, who are accomplished people of color. And the pipeline is just not sufficiently robust to support um, all the universities. So, so what do you mean by the pipeline isn't robust to? Well, there are, there, there are few graduate students of color mm -hmm. instead. And there are even, yeah, so, and and that's the pipeline for um, faculty. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's what I mean, that the, the pipeline um, can't support the desire or the need to hire faculty of color. So we have very talented graduate students of color in your department and in ours, uh, in biology. And um, so my suggestion is to um, develop a program that allows them to go and do postdoctoral work at some prestigious institution and then be attracted back to our university to apply for faculty positions. and. I call the program GPS for Graduate Pathway for Scholars. And again, I'm working with Rabi at the very beginning now um, and with Kara Paga, another South African, um, to implement the GPS program. Um, and then eventually to apply for federal funding to try 
um, to really create a sustainable program for the university for future years. That's, I mean, that's really great. And you speak about a few things that I would like to emphasize. One, like all of the all of the things that you do to increase diversity in the field and to amplify marginalized voices, but also that you you encourage marginalized professors in the field to do the same thing, and then you follow behind them. And I think a lot of the time, there's many instances where people don't do that and they feel like it's just their ideas and what they think would work, but they don't listen to the actual people of color. Like, let's say how you described um, Dr. Musa and her Howard Hughes grant and the things that you're doing to help her. And I think that's the step in the right direction as well, to make sure we amplify those voices and not just what we think would be best because we might not know we're not in their shoes. And I, I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great to be able to collaborate with all different peoples, with all different people to um, implement your GPS program. Yes. Absolutely agree. So these are all valuable insights into fostering diversity in the scientific community. But looking ahead, as you reflect on your impactful career, how would you like to be remembered in the scientific community? And what legacy do you hope to leave for future generations of scientists? So um, I think I want to be known as um, an uh, a scientist of quality, um, an excellent mentor, um, a supportive colleague, um, and a good mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think those are all great ideas of how, like, what you want to leave for future generations and what you want your legacy to be known for. Um, and what an incredible journey we've embarked on with you, Dr. Belfort. And I want to thank you for sharing your insights and stories. Thank you, Monica. And, and I appreciate you doing this kind of work. It's very gratifying to see young people who are going to be leaders in this space in the future. So thank you for having me on. And to our listeners, this is just the beginning. Subscribe to STEM Diaries Beyond Breakthroughs for more captivating conversations with scientists from diverse backgrounds. And also follow me on Instagram at SciChicaMonica for updates. <laughs>